You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Um, Paul has talked so much about what salvation means, uh, about how we need it, about what it means. Romans chapter uh, 4 was all about um, justification by faith, how Abraham believed that. It's not a new thing. Um, how cha Chapters 1 through 3, how we all need this grace, this love, this salvation uh, that Jesus is offering us. And now he wants to talk about the practical aspect of it. What does it mean? What's it mean that uh, now that you have justification by faith? He, Paul wasn't talking in abstractions before, but he really wants to dial in and make sure that we truly understand what the ramific, what the practical implications are for real and everyday, real and everyday life. So this is where this is where he starts, and I'll have a I'll have a PowerPoint in a minute. Um, he says, therefore. Since we've been justified, there's technical issues. Uh, this is where I'll start, actually. Let me give you an illustration to, to set the stage, um, to appreciate what, what this is and, uh, and what it means. Um, you already switched the camera? Oh, you're very fast. OK. Um, I want to talk about adoption. I don't know if any of you have adopted kids or been foster parents, but um, when you take in a new foster kid, especially unless it's an infant, there's this period of uncertainty, distrust, hesitancy, like the look on this girl's face uh, right here on the screen. She's not sure. She doesn't feel safe. She doesn't feel scared. She's just sort of like, I'm, I'm here. You know, there's this, they don't trust you. They don't trust you. Um, so, but there's a, as things go on, there's a tentative kind of smiles here and there and getting a little more comfortable, a little bit of warming up. And then eventually, when the kid is with you long enough, there's joy, there's peace, there's happiness. Instead of being this tentative, I don't know, hi, there's peace, there's joy, there's, there's trust. I think adoption is a very good metaphor for what salvation brings us, practically speaking, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. These two phrases, peace and hope, are the key phrases that ring out through Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So Paul is going to talk today about what is the result of all of this stuff that he's been talking about, about this righteousness from God that's being offered as a gift that, that you can't earn, but that he's offering to you, not by works, but by faith. So what's that do for you? And adoption is a way to picture that. So today we're going to talk about the peace and the hope that this righteousness from God brings the believer. So we'll be in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you like to have three points, so to speak, I don't, I don't really do it that way. But verses 1 through 5 talk about the, what, what hope in Jesus does for Christians. Verses 6 through 8, we're going to talk about um, how we can have this hope because of God's love. The last two verses are, practically speaking, what is this what does this hope mean for us? So we'll dive right into the uh, dive right into the text. This is where it uh, this is where we begin. 
Therefore, he's summing up everything that he said before. So we'll go through this pretty quickly, and I'll focus on verses uh, three, from 3 onward. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we've been declared righteous by God, by faith, not by anything you do. You don't bring things to the table, and then God rewards you with, with something, with salvation. It's, you're justified by faith, by trusting that Jesus can make you righteous, and you can't make yourself righteous. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is important, and we'll come back to it at, uh, as we go on. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, been, we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. It's as though God is on the other side of a door or on the other side of a canyon, but there, there, there's something that there's some barrier between you and between God. And if you trust in Jesus and he's declared you innocent because of your trust in what Jesus has done for you, now you've gained access, not by works, but by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Like the door is unlocked, the door is opened and Jesus ushers you in. Jesus has given you personal access to this grace, to this love, to this adoption. He's adopted you into his family if you have faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what Paul's been saying for two chapters or so now. So now we're going to zoom in on what, the, what does this mean for you? And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Boast, I don't think, is the best. It should be something like we rejoice. We rejoice. That's not something we lord over other people. Boast can give that idea, but we do rejoice. The ESV has that rendering and other, other versions do. You, you glory, you rejoice, you're, you're overjoyed in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And this is where I want to I zoom in here to talk about practical life. We glory in our sufferings. How strange. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Sometimes we want to read this and say, you know, we, we glory in our sufferings or our tribulations, your translation might have, and we just want to restrict it to terrible persecution for Christ. You know, you're, you're martyred for your faith or you're persecuted. We read about our missionaries, uh, the Devakers in, in India, in the, the Hindu nationalism that's going on there. And we, it is about that kind of stuff. But in America in 2023, you're not suffering tribulations because of your faith. Your coworkers might not like you. They might have somebody who doesn't like Christianity at work. You're not suffering for your faith the way Paul did the way the missionaries in India are doing under Hindu nationalism, where churches and mosques are being burnt to the ground. We're not suffering for our faith like that. This is a pluralist culture where you can believe in a flying spaghetti monster or believe in Jesus or believe in nothing, and most people don't care. They might, there might be some attempts to shut you out of some aspects of public life. Uh, but that's not at the level of what Paul's talking about. So this is what I want to suggest about practical reality for, for, for most of us here in 2023. I think you should view glorying or rejoicing 
in our sufferings or our tribulations, I want you to think about the, the messiness and hardness and pain of everyday real life. That's where I think for us here in 2023 in Thurston County, that's where I think this could be extremely real. Um, as you suffer the pain of real life, medical issues, betrayal by friends, betrayal by family, heartache from friends, heartache from family. Um, as you deal with the million different things that go on that make life difficult, that make life unfair, that cause pain, that cause hardship, that cause suffering, as you go through those ordinary but extremely serious tribulations of being alive in a sinful world that's corrupted and ruined by sin, including us, corrupted and, and, and ruined by sin to greater or lesser extent. If you have Jesus, you can rejoice in our suffering, your suffering. Why? He says hardship produces endurance. And I'll, I'll go through these real quick and then I'll ask an obvious question that's probably popping into your mind. As you go through difficult things, you become stronger. When you become stronger, Characters built the results of a, a, a testing or a trial sort of a I, 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 I got through this and you're stronger because of it. you have a stronger character and, and all of that stuff the going through difficult times changes you it makes you different because of what you've endured perseverance produces character character produces hope character produces hope this is my question what's Christian about this. Do you need to be Christian to be a strong person? You probably know plenty of strong people who aren't Christians, who don't care about Jesus at all, and they've gone through difficult things, and they've emerged, and they're stronger, they're tougher, maybe more cynical, but I mean, they're, they're, they've, you don't need to be a Christian to be a strong person, to be made stronger through difficulties and through trials. What's Christian about this statement? What is Paul saying that's different from what your friend at work who's not a Christian has gone through and is going through. Do they not, do, do sufferings not make them persevere? Does perseverance not change their character? Does their character being changed not make them a stronger person? The difference, the Christian thing here is the, the hope. That's the Christian thing here. Perseverance, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope. The thing that's different, even though on the outside it might look superficially the same, like Fred Meyer generic Pepsi can look the same as real Pepsi, but they're infinitely different if you know what you're looking for. The difference is that one of them is centered on the self, not in a nasty sort of way, but it's centered on the self. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have God who's given you hope that can carry you and pull you through whatever it is that's going on, because you have a God that's in charge of the world, because you have a God that's moving the, that's steering the train on a track that's been laid and that's going towards somewhere. If you don't have a God who's directing things and directing you and shaping you, you have yourself. Outsiders credit themselves, their network, their support, a resource they found with helping them through whatever it is. That's not a nasty sort of thing. It's not nasty motives either, but it's, a, it's not a deliberate kind of selfishness, but it is, a, it is a centered on, I did this, I did this, I got through it, I persevered, I'm strong, I did it. 
I, 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 I'm battling against cancer. Th those, those, are, those are natural things we want to say, and you can insert whatever it might be, but what makes the Christian response infinitely different is the hope. The hope that comes from salvation with Jesus, from reconciliation. Christians credit, credit God. Christians credit God for everything. We always have to remember that salvation is not just a thing we do, but it, it's a relationship. It creates a relationship that used to be there, but it's not there. We're justified. Go back to verse 1. We're justified by faith. What's that mean? We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's that mean? How's that work? He gives us access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This rejoicing in this hope of a better tomorrow, of us being fixed, of this world being fixed, of everything being the way it was supposed to have been a long time ago before our first parents mucked it up. This, this hope, a real hope, is what we rejoice in. And so as we suffer, as we go through the things, as, we're, as we deal with medical issues that stop us from being the people we want to be, as we deal with betrayals from people who we thought we could trust, as we deal with being let down by the people we were trusting, as we deal with whatever it might be that makes life hard, we can rejoice because we have the God, the only God, who's steering this train along a track and taking us somewhere. And this isn't purposeless suffering. This isn't purposeless things. This isn't just random bouts of evil and hardship that have no meaning and no purpose. It's happening for a reason. There's someone, capital S, someone behind it, and it's going somewhere. So now that we can see, when we can see where the world is going and we see where it's ending, we see ourselves as being adopted into God's family and being part of this community that he's building to fix what went wrong in Genesis 1 and 2. Even those hard times give us hope because God is controlling the world. So let me go back to the adoption thing uh, or a little child metaphor. A two-year-old won't understand much, won't understand why things are happening, the ramifications, all the who, what, where, when, why, but a two-year-old will understand that mom and dad are there to help her through it, and she trusts. And for the two-year-old, that's enough. The two-year-old has peace because she trusts that mom and dad are going to protect her through whatever, even though she doesn't understand. She knows mom and dad are there. It's the same here with this hope and this peace. Hope, trusting that we have a shepherd who will lead us to a better tomorrow. That's what makes this a Christian statement and not just a statement that an unbeliever can say. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't embarrass us. It doesn't turn out bad. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hope is what Christians have that makes us different.
And Paul explains a little bit more. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were powerless. We couldn't save ourselves. We're in trouble. We can't climb out of this hole that we're in. And at that time, when we had nothing to offer, we had nothing to give, there's no quid pro quo. There's not, I do this for you because I know you're going to be able to do this for me. There's nothing like that. It's not a mercenary relationship. At that time, Christ died for the ungodly. And this ungodly thing, it doesn't mean um, that, uh, it doesn't simply mean he died for people who don't know God. The idea, the words again across this idea of attitude, uh, an anti-God people. He died for people who don't like God. While we were powerless and had nothing to give, he still died for people who didn't like God, who were anti-God. We hated God. We were anti-God. Didn't like him, didn't care about him, didn't want him. Romans 1.18 through the end of chapter 3 are all about how, the different ways in which that's true. Even though that's true, Christ died for, on behalf of, as a substitute for, people who don't like him, who don't care about him. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. This is how he does it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he gives this example. If you have a righteous per a person who you know is a decent person, but you don't really know him very much, someone, you know, it's, it's rare that someone will die for that person, just this generic righteous person. Someone might die on behalf of a good person who's warm, uh, warm-hearted, decent, nice. Someone might die, but even worse, who is going to die for a sinful person who has nothing to commend themselves, who has nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer. We're, to be a sinner is to be a criminal. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Sinner is a, polite, is a churchy word that's lost a lot of its sting. It means someone who's a lawbreaker. It means someone who's a criminal. Most people won't die for a righteous person some people might die for a good per person who they know to be good. They'll die for their friend. Maybe. That's a maybe. But who on earth is going to die for a sinner, for a criminal? Nobody. Except the one man, Christ Jesus. So with that parallel set up where you can nod your head and say, yeah, I might die for Fred. You know, maybe. Maybe. You know. But God, in contrast to what ordinary people would think, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, criminals, while we were still lawbreakers who no one would want to die for, Christ died for us. He died for anti-God people. He died for criminals. He died for sinners. He died for us. That's why salvation is a, it's a personal trust. It's relationship with God about relationship about love that this is not an abstraction jesus died for you trust him you're in there's no abstraction that's cold that's clinical that's like reading that's like reading the back of a cereal box we're, ta we're at we're talking about relationship there's a heavenly father calling anti-god sinners to come 
and inviting us to be adopted into a family we don't have a right to belong to. He's offering us, offering to give us his righteousness. We don't have any, but he's offering to give it to us, give us his to reconcile us to him. He's offering to give us peace. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? No one likes to talk about, I guess that's not quite fair. Many people don't like to talk about wrath, about God being angry, because it seems off the handle, it seems wrong. But God is upset when people do wrong. Justice has to be served. It's not an out-of-control, flaming, crazed anger. But I said before, if sin is lawlessness, and that means sinners are criminals, and there has to be an, uh, there has to be an account made. So God's wrath, John 3, I think off the cuff, I think it's John 3, 34, 36. Um, God's wrath abides on us if we don't accept the substitution Jesus is offering. If you've been justified by his blood, by his atonement, by his atonement, how much more will you be saved from God's wrath through him? And then he goes on and says something that goes again to the personal aspect, that makes this more than an equation in a math book or a description on the back of a cereal box. For if, while we were God's enemies, that's a stark thing to say, the King James might say, well, we were at enmity with God. It's been too long since it was my primary Bible. But it, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The idea of rescue can be kind of impersonal. You know, if a Coast Guard person rescues someone from a fishing boat, they may never see the person again. You know, I'm just, I'm doing my job sort of thing. But, so rescue is good, but it can be impersonal. That's why Paul talks about rec not just rescue, but reconciliation. What's it mean to be reconciled to someone? What do you guys think? What's it mean? What does reconciliation mean? To be what? To be made right? It's like, it's like there used to be a relationship, but now it's been ruined. And now we're going to fix it. You have someone you used to be friends with and they did something awful. You used to be friends. You're estranged. And maybe one day you can reconcile. If you have a couple, they're not getting along in their marriage. They split up or they, 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 there's a fight and you know the husband gets to sleep on the couch for whatever until someone decides to, hopefully both parties decide to reconcile. Fixing a relationship that's been breached, that's been broken. This is the opposite of impersonal. Reconciliation. We were made, that's part of what being made in the image of God means. We are made to be in relationship with each other and in relationship with God, but all of that was ruined. And so when we become believers, we're reconciled because that original relationship that was designed to be like this, but got broken, is being fixed. One by one in the hearts of everyone who trusts in Jesus. Reconciliation. Through Jesus, your relationship with God can be healed. It's not just rescue by someone who you may never see again, who you're grateful for, might not know his name, might not know her name, might never see her again. This is rescue and reconciliation. 
which is better than just rescue. Not only, verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast or rejoice, was a better translation, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. We have peace with God, those two words, peace and hope that I mentioned at the beginning. We have peace with God because we've been reconciled. It's personal. It's about relationship. It's about adoption. It's about God fixing the paradise that was lost so long ago. And reconciliation means he wants you, he wants your reconciliation to be a part of the new and better creation that he's making down the road. And this is what the peace with God thing is about that Paul mentioned at the beginning. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This message, that's the message that a Jesus community is supposed to be about. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you like to hear about it? That's what a church is about. That's what should drive a church. That's what, that's what a church is supposed to be doing. I could go many places with this, but the application I'll, I'll leave us with is a corporate church application. Is this what our church is about? You read the book of Revelation and the, the criticisms and the praises of all the churches, size isn't mentioned. Size, God doesn't care whether you're 20 people or 2,000 people. He cares about whether the church, the church is all over the place, the untold millions of churches all over the world, small, large, etc., whether they're about that, the peace and hope. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that peace gives us hope. Is that what the church is about? God has proven his love for everyone in the whole wide world. In this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if that isn't the light that a Christian community is shining, then it needs to pack it in and give its facility to another group of believers who want their church to be about that message. It's so easy to look around at any church you're part of and view it by metrics that aren't real. There's not 500 people here today. There's not 50 people here today. Does that mean that church isn't good? Does it mean it's subpar? Does it mean it's awful? Does it mean it's lame? What's it mean? The question, when you get through all the list of things that we know aren't the real metric, but we use them anyway, even though we say we know and we do it anyway and the cycle continues. When you get through all of that stuff, all those false yardsticks, this is the question that determines whether a church is a Jesus church or just a community group of people who like to have potlucks. This is the difference. Are we about that message. Is that what we're here for? Is that what gives us hope? Do we have peace? Do we have hope? Do we want to take the message outside the walls? Or do we just say amen to each other within the walls and go home? That's the question. That's the dividing line between a, G a real Jesus community and one that's full of nice people but isn't really, it's just insular. Does our church make it a priority to share the peace and hope? 
with the re resources and tools we have? Do we, do we make it a priority to do that? Do we work to show and tell people about the love that God has for them, that we, while they're yet sinners, Christ died for them? It's good to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But do we as a church, do we try to translate that into action out there? Or is it just something we do privately here, huddled together inside the walls? If the answer is yes, I'm not saying perfect, but if the answer is yes, we, we try with the people and resources and tools we have to push the message out, to give the message, to be a light, not just as individuals, but as a group of small people, a large group, a small group, it doesn't matter. Do we try to do that or not? Which brings us to the stuff that's here that we're giving to the elementary school. As long as we are trying to give the message out through whatever innovative and creative ways we can think, to give this to the school with some gospel tracts and a card signed by the church, who knows what that can do? But if we're trying to do that, then not only do we rejoice in God, but he's going to rejoice in us. Because God doesn't care whether there's 20, whether there's 30, or whether there's 500. He cares whether we're doing this. That's what he cares about. And if we're doing this, then God rejoices in us just as much as we rejoice in him. So as we read about this message of peace and hope, let it not be some abstract thing that just sort of floats around and then we go off and have lunch especially since lunch is here so how about that uh, let's make it real let's let's give ourselves to doing something new every month for our community i don't know what october's theme is going to be yet but we'll deliver this to the school and we'll do something for october and uh let's be a church that gives this message out and does more than just talk about it and rejoice inside these walls because there's a whole wide world out there in little churches like ours, big, small, over the world, our job is to shine the light outside the walls so more people can join the community, join God's family, and be with us in the world to come. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Please work on our hearts, convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment as your Holy Spirit sees fit. Uh, please bless our efforts that we're making to reach our community in ways small and large. Help us to see new people come to faith and help us to be encouraged as we see your Holy Spirit work uh, through, our, through the efforts we're making to reach our community uh, with the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.